Welcome everyone. Last week I began a series of talks on renunciation, which in um, the Buddhist tradition is uh, a central teaching, although it's not necessarily easy to understand or it's easy to misunderstand, maybe it's best to say it that way. When we hear words like renunciation, as I mentioned last week, we have a strong sense that, you know, I'm bad and I need to give up something in order to be good. Then obviously, anytime we simplify something like that, we, we miss what it's really about. So it's true that <clears throat> there is something to let go of. And in fact, a whole, the whole path, the whole spiritual path can be thought of or understood in terms of not not even letting go of what we need to let go of. But actually it's much more, the work in practice is much more in understanding what needs to be let go of. That's the hard part. Actually the letting go comes naturally when we see what is extra. But if we don't see what's extra, you know, we tend to let go of the wrong things. So last week I mentioned this famous story in the Buddhist uh, during the time of the Buddha with this layperson Chitta. And he talked that uh, in this discussion he had with some monks, this layperson Chitta gave this analogy of two oxen yoked together or having that wooden collar between them. And it's not the one ox being dependent on the other or this ox being dependent on that. The problem or the thing that ties them together is this third thing. It's what in our practice arises in conjunction with having eyes that see, having ears that hear, having a body that has physical sensation, having a mind that thinks. It's not the thoughts themselves that are a problem. It's not the mind that thinks that's the problem. It's not the eyes that sees or the what we see that's the problem. It's the attachment or identification or wrong view that arises in conjunction with that. That's the problem. So tonight I want to talk more about that, about renunciation, about the joy of renunciation. And what we mean by when we talk about um, going beyond the world, it's really this world of attachment, a world of identification that we're going beyond. Another way the Buddha talked about it often, actually, is this phrase, something like the danger of sensual pleasures. And again, this is a really provocative statement because we feel like, uh, you know, sense experience and sense pleasures that, what's wrong with that? Why should we be against sense pleasures? And the Buddha is not against sense pleasures, the way he taught. He totally, he taught often, you know, of the real beauty in some sense experiences and the real pain in other sense experiences. But his point was that we can't, we can't find real happiness, real relief in sense experience. It doesn't mean that it isn't pleasant when we're hanging out with friends or having good food or taking a warm bath, sleeping at night. It just means, as we've all discovered, that it isn't an end in, in itself. So when the Buddha talks about the danger of sensual pleasures, it's really in light of the, what the mind does with sensual pleasures. The problem isn't the sensual pleasures. The problem is this deep habit to get attached to them, to want more of them, to never be satisfied. Because, of course, We've had a lot of sense pleasure in our life. But is anybody here satisfied yet? Like where is the end of desire? Where does it actually end getting pleasant sense experience? Again, the Buddha never taught that we should avoid pleasant experience, as sometimes people suggest. In fact, he very consciously, clearly taught over and over again that asceticism in and of itself isn't a worthy path to follow. You know, the whole way, the way he started teaching, I mentioned this last week, was this middle way between 
indulging in sense experience, thinking that that's, that's the ticket. If I can only just have this sense experience, then I'll be happy forever. And rejecting sense experience. He rejected both of those notions, asceticism, sense indulging. And he taught this other way, which is really about understanding our predicament. <clears throat> we want to understand our predicament as a sensitive human being, as a, a being that sees and hears and thinks and touches, smells and tastes. So we're sensitive, we're having sense experience and understanding what is it that we can let go of. The Buddha said once, whatever bliss in the world is found in sensual pleasures and whatever there is of heavenly bliss, these are not worth one sixteenth part of the bliss that comes with cravings end. And this is a place to explore. <clears throat> and it's actually the way the Buddha suggested we do this exploration, not to jump right into renunciation because we think we should, but to begin to explore um, how to be more competent or skillful at having positive, wholesome sense experiences. To get really good. Like how do we cultivate health in the body? Because, you know, that's a pleasant sense experience. And how do we cultivate harmonious relationships with our partners or friends or family members or people at work or community? Those are also wholesome. I mean, when we're in sync with our family or partners or whatever, it feels good, just like it feels like hell when we're not in sync and we're bumping up against them. You know, and when we have enough, we have a, a good skill that people are willing to compensate us for. And so we have this nice synergy where we, you know, put in a good day's work and at the end of the day, we get something back so we can buy a home and food and other basic needs so that we can have a comfortable life. That's another kind of wholesome pleasure. But the reason the Buddha says this is dangerous isn't that it isn't a wholesome pleasure. It's this extra thing we do with our wealth, with our beauty, with our health, with our wholesome relationships. What we do is we tend to overlay attachment or identification. You know, this is so obvious when we get sick. We don't, we don't realize how attached we are to being healthy until we get sick. Some people I know have gotten a little flu bug. I don't know if it's the swine flu, but I've, I'm, several people just in the last few weeks, my mom included, have had these sort of short bouts, two days of kind of flu symptoms. And it can be shocking when, you know, you're feeling good and all of a sudden you feel like a, you know, a wet rag. You just want to lie there, kind of cold sweat, maybe a little nauseous or diarrhea. And it can be such a shock to the system. You know, we expect to be healthy until we remember that we're vulnerable to being sick. Or we can not realize how attached we are to getting a paycheck until we get laid off. And then what a shock that is, or even forget being laid off, just it becomes apparent that our job isn't as secure as we thought it was. Or our relationship with our partner wasn't, isn't as secure as we thought it was. So this is the thing with sense pleasures, is we have to appreciate, we need to respect how uh, easy it is for us, maybe even inevitable, for us to get identified or attached to what's working well. And, of course, the flip side of that is to be averse, to just assume it's appropriate to struggle when it isn't going the way we want it to go. For example, taking sickness again. It's like we suffer at both ends. We suffer when all of a sudden we get sick because we're surprised. You know, we have a human body, yet we get surprised when we get sick. Like, why is this happening to me? And then, then once we're sick, once we kind of get, okay, we're sick, then we feel it's appropriate to struggle with it, like to hate it, that that somehow will do some good. I, and I don't know if you realize or to see this, but this is a really good practice when you are sick or when something irritating is going on. 
notice the insanity of resisting. Like the mind somehow justifies resisting or struggling with something that is already the way that it is. How ridiculous that is. When you actually look at it, it doesn't make any sense at all. And yet, unconsciously, we'll just do that if we're not paying close attention. So we want to see that uh, this habit of struggling is what we need to abandon, is what we can abandon. It's actually the only thing we can abandon. It's the, in a way, everything else is just nature. But one of these particular aspects of nature, the sort of extra aspect of nature that we've somehow mysteriously have been able to concoct is this resistance. It doesn't actually resist anything. It just creates suffering. Suffering, the sort of inner mental struggle, resistance, aversion, craving, it's just its own thing. This is such a a potent insight. When we discover that suffering, mental suffering, I'm not talking about the unpleasantness of being cold or the unpleasantness of being hungry, but this mental resistance, this mental struggling, that it's its own thing. It doesn't really, uh, it isn't really sort of affecting the, the general unfolding of our lives. It's sort of an overlay that we put on the moment, this resistance. As soon as we let go, we experience the release of that suffering. People discover this. They don't know necessarily in the beginning know how to understand this experience, but probably everybody in this room has had this experience countless times, where we've been involved in what the Buddha calls the second dart or the second arrow. The way he used this analogy is that often as human beings we get stuck with arrows because it's just inevitable ups and downs, pain and pleasure. It just comes with the territory of being alive. We stub our toe, uh, we get embarrassed, we experience cold, we experience heat. But the resistance is the second arrow. It's like we realize that it's not the way we want it and we struggle with that. So it's like we stick ourselves with another arrow. This is the insanity. This is what we can do something about. Discovering that being open to the inevitable ups and downs of our lives, as as unpleasant as that is, like being open so when things are really going well, we're open to the fragility. So when we are healthy, we're not oblivious to the fact that we're healthy. We're aware that we're healthy and we're aware that it's it's fragile, like it will last for a while until we get sick and then it will go away. And when we get older, we become vulnerable to a lot more, you know, ill health. So not resisting the ordinary insults that come with being a human being, mental and physical insults that come with being a human being, the unavoidable ones. Now resisting that means we're really dropping the mental suffering. It's amazing how well life works without that. See, what we think is the suffering we experience, we think it's due to the ordinary ups and downs. But actually the ordinary ups and downs in life are not not necessarily uh, as intense, as overwhelming as the overlay that we bring, the resistance that we bring. People always, when I say things like that, they always bring up, well, what about the Holocaust? Or what about people in war? Or people starving? You know, how can, how can those circumstances be okay? And I'm not saying that they're okay, and I'm not saying that there isn't real discomfort or uh, fear or suffering. But it's a, it's a specific kind, and so we, it's, it's in a way it's good to use two words, maybe to talk about pain, the pain of starvation, the pain of abuse, and this other kind of suffering, which you know I'm calling mental suffering, or the, the habit of resisting, the habit of struggling with the conditions. Another way the Buddha talked about it 
is in terms of being dependent or independent. For us, you know, as normal, ordinary, and what the Buddha would consider deluded human beings, you know, it feels so appropriate to be dependent on the particular conditions of our lives. Like, we just assume that our happiness, our well-being, is a function of our particular conditions, like whether we're healthy or not, whether we're um, rich or not, or secure or not with our money. But but that's just a story, you know? Like, if you're sick, you should be unhappy. If you're healthy, you should be happy. If you're in a healthy relationship, you should be happy. If you're single or in an unhappy relationship, you should be unhappy. I mean, we just, we have these sort of stories that we tell ourselves. Some of you know my, my nephew um, was diagnosed a month or so ago with a serious kind of bone cancer. And I saw him today. We were on a boat in, on Lake Minnetonka, my sister and brother-in-law's boat, a di- different family member, and the whole family was there. And, you know, he's going through this incredible, incredibly difficult state. But see, it's only difficult in moments. There are a lot of moments when he's just a seven-year-old boy kind of having a fine time being a seven-year-old boy. Although he may be weaker, or now he's, his hair is gone. But, you know, you know, that's a problem when you see yourself in the mirror and you think, I should have hair, you know, or I don't want people to see me without hair. But moment by moment, it's not a problem unless the mind makes it a problem. And even if there's some discomfort in the body, it doesn't have to be a problem. It can be just the discomfort in the body. But it is a problem if we make it a problem. Just like now, I mean, if I gave us all an exercise, probably, maybe all of us, but most of us, if we all dwelled on a particular thing that we consider a problem in our life, really put our attention on it, really allowed ourselves to get identified, we could all become suffering beings in a couple minutes. You know, depending, this is where, you know, being not so good at concentration would slow you down. <laughs> but those of us who are able to really obsess well, we could whip up some real pain very quickly. You know, whether we're worrying about some political issue, some big worldly issue, or some little niggly issue in our life, like the fact that our partner doesn't wash the dishes we want him or her to wash them, or whatever it might be. Just bringing that image to mind and kind of dwelling on how not fair it is, we could really create a lot of suffering. But, but what would draw us into the suffering is how right it feels to engage in that kind of thinking. It's like it's such a slippery slope or well-greased habit to, to feel justified in basically hurting ourselves. We feel justified in our suffering. Why else does this pattern repeat itself so often if it doesn't feel on the surface so right? So renunciation is really, you know, the first step the Buddha suggests is, well, you know, you want to be happy because, of course, people would go to a spiritual teacher like the Buddha saying, you know, I hear you know something about happiness. I really want to be happy. Tell me what to do. And the Buddha would assess the person and generally if a person didn't have a lot of practice experience, he would start on this level. Okay, you want to be happy? He would start teaching them well, how to be happy on the level of sense experience. He wouldn't talk about renunciation initially because he understood people want to be, they want a pleasant sense experience. So he would teach them how to have pleasant sense experience, you know, how to run your, your life well so that your relationships work, so you're in harmony with your community, and even, he would even teach people well, how to live in a way so that when you get reborn, you'll be reborn in a really beautiful realm of existence. You know? So he even taught in this way, too. It may be surprising to people. So he taught about heaven, he taught about hell, taught about how you get to heaven by being a generous and kind person, and how do you, get, you get to hell by killing other people or cheating other people or abusing other people. 
but the cycle just continues on and on. This is a little bit different in terms of sort of the Buddhist cosmology, at least at the time of the Buddha, how they taught. But then, even when people then got good at that, like good at sort of being generous and being kind because it leads to favorable results. You know, now everybody respects me because I'm generous and I'm kind and I'm wise and I'm not always talking about myself. I'm able to listen. I'm able to take turns and share and be patient. And, you know, my life starts to work. And then at that point, the Buddha would say, well, you notice you're getting a lot of those pleasant pleasant experiences that you wanted. And you'd say, yeah, that's true. It's and then he might suggest, well, do you notice do you notice that even though things are working out pretty well in your life, and certainly certainly relative to most of the human beings on the planet, things are going pretty well for you. Do you realize, can you feel, can you notice how no matter how competent you've gotten at being happy, at setting emotion favorable results, that it's still fragile and it, it takes constant care. You know, we got to constantly be caring for what we're setting in motion, you know, by how we're relating. Like, am I being appropriate? Am I being kind? Am I being patient? Am I, is greed arising? Is aversion arising? Am I not being uh, clear? Am I being spaced out? So even though we might have set in motion a really good life, we have problems. Before my nephew got cancer, the biggest problem for my brother, the father of this young boy, he's got this beautiful home in the suburbs, really beautiful, right next to this big oak forested park. And I mean, mature, beautiful oaks throughout the neighborhood and then this whole huge uh, regional park. And, uh, but the problem is these big pileated woodpeckers come and dig big holes in a cedar house. <laughs> and of course they're protected so you can't get rid of them. And he's tried over the years everything and it really drives him nuts. <laughs> I hope he doesn't listen to this talk. <laughs> so this is the world this is the world we live in that, you know, even when things are going well and you know, they've got Beautiful. They're beautiful people. They got beautiful kids. They have a beautiful relationship. They live in a good place. You know, a lot of beautiful things. But we can we can really be tormented by woodpeckers. We can be tormented by anything. It's amazing what can drive us uh, into a real uh, state of suffering. Really, from an outside point of view, small things. And so this is what the Buddha would point out, like how, um, how easy it is to suffer, even when things are going well. One story from the time of the Buddha, one of the great patrons of the Buddha, king and queen, both students of the Buddha, and uh, she lost one of the queen, lost one of her grandkids, and was uh, obviously, you know, grief-stricken with that loss. And talked to the Buddha and, and said, you know, I would, I wish I, I could have hundreds and hundreds of children and grandchildren and, you know, I just love them so much. And then the Buddha pointed out, but, you know, every one of those grandchildren, of course, would be vulnerable to death. In fact, they're all going to die, you know, no, maybe before you, maybe after you, but all of them will die and experience their loss in their own life of the, what, those people they care about. And to really help her understand that, sort of seeking some ultimate happiness by having more of a good thing, doesn't mean it isn't a good thing. Buddha didn't say having children or grandchildren that you love is a bad thing. He just said it's not the appropriate place to base ultimate happiness. And so this is how he would turn somebody's mind toward renunciation, is to see the limitations. Like once we have some confidence, so he, he wouldn't necessarily teach somebody in poverty or somebody who's kind of in a really difficult situation. He'd probably try to help them have some baseline of happiness, sort of appropriate level of sense, security, sense of uh, happiness, sense of pleasure. 
and then once there's some basic amount to see the fragility and see the limitations so we can just use that in our own like it's we don't you know when we're sitting and we're in excruciating pain that may not be the time to sort of renounce aversion or to renounce uh, you know to sort of bring up this idea of renunciation because probably what we do is just hate ourselves for not being able to renounce our desire to get rid of the pain maybe it's better to adjust the posture release the pain in the leg or knee develop some composure in the mind and then from this place of composure even when things are relatively calm and easy to realize being dependent on calm is itself fragile and insecure because the next time, next time somebody moves in the room that could be a challenge to our concentration so we don't want to feel we don't want to think that just getting calm just getting a little meditative calm or being in a beautiful place in nature is going to help in the end because we can be in a beautiful place in nature and then somebody comes by on a dirt bike you know and destroys our equilibrium what are they doing I thought this is protected land or you know whatever how could someone be so stupid in this beautiful place to be riding a bike like that you know don't they know some young man or young woman having a great time on a bike no they're having a great time but they're actually happy <laughs> we're the ones that are suffering so the more we look in these relatively peaceful relatively composed states of mind the more we take that opportunity to see the fragility to see the limitations of our health of our well-being of our calm of the love that we feel to really see that it's fragile and we want a deeper understanding so and what we're really is doing is we're not rejecting the world we're not saying that the the beautiful place in nature or the beautiful friendship or the wonderful healthy food in no way are we saying that that's bad but we're just not assuming it's any real end in and of itself and so then we're motivated to use our life to reflect more deeply on well, what what might be an uh, a true refuge then if wholesome sense pleasures aren't an ultimate refuge what is an ultimate refuge and then all of a sudden we become interested in well what did the Buddha have to say about this well one thing he said is whatever is not yours practitioners abandon it and then he had this very systematic way and he taught this hundreds of talks one way or another he gave the same basic instruction when you have abandoned it it will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time and what is it what is it that is not yours material form is not yours meaning the five sense gates the the seeing hearing smelling tasting touching and thinking or I'm sorry material form just the five physical senses that experience is not yours now normally we think when I see something that sight is mine but the Buddha trains us like when we're seeing it's just seeing we don't need to sort of impute that's I'm seeing Kenneth we don't need to do that second part it's just seeing seeing is just seeing it isn't self it isn't mine in any real sense hearing is hearing that car yours in any way but we get attached like the pain even the pain even that feeling of contact like butt on the chair if you just tune into the butt on the chair or the cushion right now you feel the pressure the weight is that in any real way mine or yours it's just pressure but casually because of ignorance we just impute a sense of ownership that's my pressure <laughs> not yours it's my pressure it's my weight and we do this all the time same with our thoughts in the mind and of course thoughts are even more seductive so he goes on first he talks about body and then he talks about mind so material form, form the five physical senses aren't yours so abandon it feeling so feeling is the mental uh, intuition that this is pleasant or this is unpleasant it's the knowing this is pleasant or the knowing this is unpleasant or neutral 
that's not yours. So even when something's pleasant, the pleasantness of any experience or the unpleasantness is just something being known. It's not really ours. It's just a habit of taking it personally. But we could have another habit, which is to notice pleasantness, to notice unpleasantness, and just to not do that second thing, which is to take it personally. Doesn't mean we're not sensitive to what's pleasant and unpleasant. So if somebody serves us a wonderful dinner, there's still a very clear awareness, this is pleasant. We're just not doing that second part, which is assuming it belongs to me, the pleasant experience belongs to me. And then he goes on to say, perception is not yours, abandon it. So you see, it's really subtle. Because we just assume I'm the person perceiving this moment's experience. But we could be very much, what's the percipient, is that the word? Well, anyway, we could very much be perceiving moment by moment, but we don't need to assume that I'm perceiving, but just perceiving is happening. Recognition, you know, is happening. I look over there, I see Lori, or I see the door. So that, that's a perception, you know, door. But I don't need to say, you know, I'm perceiving the door. I'm recognizing that that's a door. And even consciousness, mental formations and consciousness, all the rest of the mind. So we basically have physical experience, the five physical senses, and the mind. We can continue to have physical and mental experience, but we don't need to take any of it personally. We don't have to do that second part. This is a renunciation. So this is what the Buddha means by renunciation. It's not like getting rid of your snowmobile or getting rid of your you know, kitchen gadgets or whatever your hobbies might be. It's not identifying, learning that it's extra. We don't need to be identified with moment-to-moment -moment experience. And this is what the Buddha means by being independent, not dependent on the on sense experience, not dependent on conditions. And you can just imagine, I mean, this is a good way to use your imagination. You know, imagine being a human being with a life situation like we all have, but not being dependent, not sort of gripping, trying to make our life unfold this way and not that way. But just like a leaf falls out of a tree and naturally finds its way to the ground or the rain falls on the mountainside and naturally makes its way eventually to the ocean, our life takes birth and it ends at some point. And maybe the best, happiest, and most useful in terms of supporting the happiness of others, the most useful life is a life that just follows that natural course without somebody taking ownership moment by moment of what's being seen, what's being said, what's being done, what's not being done, what might be done. That's like friction. Friction in a world that's ultimately frictionless. And in a way our kind of delusion in, in the Buddhist system, it's like somehow discovering a way to create friction in a frictionless universe. That's, that's what we do. And the Buddha's teachings are really about how to come back to that natural way of being frictionless. It's not about not being a human being, not interacting, not being sensitive, but how to be a sensitive human being in a frictionless way without resisting. So initially we feel like we've got to be the person who's wise, but even wisdom can be part of this frictionless unfolding. Like we're either wise or we're not wise in any moment. And the idea, if we're not wise, if, if in a moment in one of our life situations, you know, we're not so wise, well, as long as we remain awake, the not being wise, of course, means we're going to do something inappropriate to that situation. And we'll see it. We'll experience the result of not being wise. The corrective mechanism is in place and will be less likely to be unwise when that kind of situation arises in the future. So we don't even need to, to grasp after being wise or being skillful. We can just trust we're going to be as skillful as we can be moment by moment 
if we just stay awake. And the best way to stay awake is to invest in being awake as opposed to invest in being in control. And that's really the difference. Are we going to spend our life investing in struggling and being in control? Or are we going to spend our life investing in being awake and understanding how it is? And in every moment, we have that choice. Which direction? Toward control, I'm in control, or toward understanding, this is how it is. This is how it is. This is how it is. This leads to a life with a lot of insight and learning. This leads to a lot of frustration and suffering. And this is a good time to end so that we have some time to hear from one another what you've learned. Times in your life when you discovered this sort of natural letting go or renunciation. The renunciation of attachment or identification. And times when you found yourself identified and attached taking the stance of wanting to be the person in control, the wanting to be the person who can make things go the way you think they should go, and the inevitable frustration with that. And any questions, of course, you have. Yeah, Julian. I found that in my life recently, I've been telling myself and a couple people that we need to recondition ourselves to happiness. And I was really interested in what you said about if someone were to come to the Buddha and really be quite troubled, you know, telling him just lose the eye, you know, that's not going to work. That's a huge practice that he would, and just correct me if I don't state it right, but that he would work on some more practical reconditioning to happiness. I mean, what is that for us? What's, an, what's a pragmatic example of it? Yeah. Is it just following our bliss, watching a movie, doing something very simple? I mean, how can we recondition the mind? Recondition ourselves to happiness in a subtle way so we kind of get back on track. Yeah. Well, one of the things about the basic technique of coming into the experience of the body is it teaches us something really profound. I mean, it's so simple, and we can do this 10,000 times a day, just coming into the experience of the body. And it, it teaches us this profound lesson that the dramas in our mind, the kind of endless spinning of our inner dialogue thinking, that that's optional. And see, most of the time we don't take it as optional. We think the story that's going through our mind, it's like, it's like we've got to finish the story. The example I give is, you know when we wake up in the middle of the night and we've been dreaming, you notice that strong pull to want to go back to the dream, even if it's an unpleasant dream. It's like we're somehow drawn to finish the story. Like, you interrupt, interrupted my nightmare, you know. <laughs> I need to get back to it. And isn't that interesting that somehow more important than happiness is like our dependence on our stories making sense, having some kind of integrity. Our delusions need integrity. And it's uh, so when we can come, when we develop, and we have enough confidence in the basic instruction to, like, to bring the attention to the breath or to bring the attention to the body, which is just the present moment more generally, hearing, feeling the body sitting, feeling the body walking. It's like a direct challenge to our addiction, to our stories, our thinking process. And that's the way we begin. And this is why even little things like knitting, taking a walk through the woods, cooking a meal, but when we give ourselves to these simple instruction, uh, simple activities fully, this wholeheartedness, we discover a very profound truth, which is we're not addicted, we're not dependent on a story. That a real, authentic, uh, uh, kind of pr profound and resonant happiness is available not because of what we're doing, but because of what we're not doing. You know, it's the not, the non-participation in our obsessive thinking that leads to that. It's not the knitting itself that's so conducive to happiness. It's that when we're just there in the knitting, we're not fragmenting the mind with our fear and our worries and our ideas of the future and our laments of the past. It's just. It's just the natural wholeness of a mind not fragmented due to the thinking process.
So I think that's the most practical way to understand renunciation is to discover in all the little ways and just start where you like to absorb in things you like to absorb into to discover the natural happiness of absorbing into normal ordinary activities walking from your car to the office just to, to do that wholeheartedly and to discover that there's some real happiness in that and then and then it becomes uh, we become like not so seduced by the stories our mind spins out where happiness, where we think happiness lies, because we just discovered our resonant happiness just there, walking or knitting or you know whatever we we did. Other thoughts, people? Yeah, Stan. I think it's Ajahn Brahm, but it might be Ajahn Sumedha who tells a story about when they were in the monastery with Ajahn Chah, and the village would play really loud music at times. And the monks would complain. And Ajahn Chah would say, well, you're complaining about the music impinging upon you, but how are you impinging upon the music or upon yeah. the sounds? Yeah. And I try to remind myself of that story because, like, one night, it was like got somebody in a car and Longfellow had this loud muffler. And I was like, rrr, rrr. Hmm. And I go, how dare it? Like you were so yeah. like dirt bite. But then I said, how are you impinging upon the loud muffler? Yeah. I'm complaining about it and then I'm tightening my body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, the loud muffler is not pleasant, but it's that part that I'm pleasant and not making too many stories about it. And then I calm down a little bit or I think of that. I wish I would have had that story when the drum corps was next door. Yeah, and yeah. Well, next spring. Yeah, yeah. next spring. Yeah. Two weeks spring. before May Day. Yeah, and the drum corps. Um, or when something at work happens, since we had a drum corps right next door one day. Yeah, um, yeah. So that helps me in a way to think. That story helps me, I think, through renunciation. Yeah, and that's a nice image for all of us to remember. Just the image of the mind going out and attacking what it doesn't like or grabbing a hold of what it likes. You know, if we see an attractive person or an attra attractive object, I mean, the mind literally, I mean, the, the, the personal experience is the mind literally kind of going out and grabbing. And that desire, that lusting is itself painful. Just like the aversion that you described, that sort of pushing away, no, is painful. And to see that it's our mind kind of making a mess of things. The sound is just the sound. The attractive person is just an attractive person. But what our mind does with it is what's messy and harmful and suffering. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Yeah, Jenny. and then sharing it with us is also really instructive and useful because it teaches what you said Jenny really teaches us about compassion that it has to be the flip side of wisdom it can't be we can't really get there unless we understand and and so one of the real training points for all of us probably is to be able to see the suffering of other people and to really be at ease with it like not to feel responsible because in order to be really close to suffering we can't be in that controlling mode we can't be afraid of it we have to understand that people will suffer at times and sometimes there's things we can do sometimes that there are things there's nothing that we can do so the first we have to make peace with the suffering not that it takes necessarily a long time but we really have to be okay so that our attempt to help isn't based on not liking their suffering but it's based on having made peace with their suffering 
And then our response is just a pure act of generosity. It's like we're offering it. We don't know if it's going to have a positive effect. But there's no spin. It's not like I'm offering this so you can get rid of your suffering so your suffering stops bothering me. <laughs> Which is, yeah, well, I know it well. <laughs> As probably many of us do. Yeah. Thanks, Jenny. Other thoughts people have? Yeah, time for maybe one more, Alice. Or two more. And there may be some truth to that, that people have a more simple existence, conceptually simpler existence. This practice might come easier for them. But there's something to be said for the sort of explicitness of the suffering, of kind of identifying everything and having opinions about everything that helps clarify the, this basic pattern or problem in the mind. And uh, so maybe there are advantages to being neurotic in this way that most of us here in the West have been trained to be neurotic. You know, we, we have been trained to be critical and to have opinions about everything and to be able to defend them well. And, you know, this is not the direction that the practice goes. But, but like I said, you know, we can analyze the predicament with the same Skill, a, a sort of skill we've developed to analyze. So we can use that to analyze it. We can turn the sort of capacity to honestly analyze a problem, to analyze the, the sort of psychological or existential predicament we're in with the way the mind relates. So, as I'm sure you're doing, <laughs> as you described. Yeah, other thoughts? Yeah, David. Well, one thing that um, I've experienced, and I don't know if anybody else has experienced the same thing, when I'm uh, usually in one of my real controlling states, and I'm not really realizing it, and then when I start coming through it, you know, and I'm, you know, I want a clean that life is going to make me let go of it. And when, it hap when that happens, it's usually when I've exhausted all the ability <laughs> that I have to control the situation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and for some reason, um, however, few moments that might this this the feeling that's after that lasts is one of freedom. Yeah. I don't understand why, but there's always like a release, like and then as life progresses and usually something comes to me that maybe reinforces the fact that, you know, maybe I shouldn't hold on so tightly. Yeah. And I this is brings up kind of an archetypal point in practice and uh, I think often demonstrated in sort of the classic uh, person dying, struggling with their dying process, and at some point, hopefully, making peace with the reality that this body's about to die. And uh, to kind of see that as a metaphor, you know, we don't have to wait until that moment in our life. We can understand that, that uh, there's something deeply wise and recognizing this is how it is. You know, it kind of creates a moment where there are many possibilities. Then when we're resisting being sick or resisting something, we don't see all the possibilities of how we might relate, how, how we might sort of uh, move forward in this moment. Because we're so fixed that it can't be this way, it shouldn't be this way. So there's something about surrender. You know, this is a deep archetype in spiritual path understanding what surrender means. And it's not, it's not like a resignation. That's not what it is. It's really about a kind of honesty and letting our whole body-mind come into alignment with the way it is. And then letting our response uh, naturally arise out of being in alignment. So when it becomes completely obvious that we're going to die, for example, then there's no mind, heart, would resist it at that point. 
we only resist it when we have this idea, it shouldn't be this way, it doesn't have to be this way, I can somehow avoid this, <laughs> you know. And so this, of course, happens in every, in just thousands of ways in our lives, that we can really come into alignment with the moment, and then, like you described so well, David, just that sense of relief, like things get so simple when we're in alignment with the way it is, because we're not deluded thinking that things are other than they are. And we can then, you know, our response will just naturally arise. This is a way, like when you have a difficult choice in your life, and we can end here. Uh, this is a good thing to practice in the next few weeks, because part of renunciation is this switch from being in control to being the one who understands, or the one who knows. And so, when you have a simple choice in your life, you can like notice what it feels like to want to be the person in control who makes the right choice versus being the person who understands what it feels like to have a choice to not know. And just to sort of relax in that place, like to really come into alignment with the uncertainty, like there is no way I can actually know what the best choice is. I mean, I can have a guess, but we don't know how things are going to unfold. We don't know all the different pieces of the puzzle. So we're going to, in a way, guess ultimately, or make an educated guess. And so to, but to really land there, and to relax there, to feel the uncertainty, and to let the choice arise naturally. And not, not choosing is a choice. So don't, don't second guess yourself, well, I'm not choosing. I thought I was going to choose. Mark said that a choice would arise naturally. <laughs> well, if you're there and you're relaxing and you're not and you're choosing not to choose, that's a choice and you have to appreciate that. You're not putting any time schedule and at some point a choice will happen and you can just sort of take uh, take refuge in awareness or understanding as opposed to being the person who's got to make the right choice. And just see it as a kind of a training place. And we'll talk about that next week. And remind me if I forget. But let's take a moment, let go of the words, take a few breaths together. See if it's possible to come fully into the experience of the present moment, not anticipating the future, not afraid to feel what we feel, and to remember our deepest aspiration for our lives, to live in a way that supports happiness and peace and liberation, not just for our own heart, but for all beings without exception. May we all be free from suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.